With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25 and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now... On with the show.
What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast on Friday, the 17th of February. We're over halfway through the second month of the year already. This year is disappearing very, very quickly. And frankly, it's not a bad thing. Um, we had lots of football last night, Europa League and Europa Conference League action. Red Bull Salzburg beat Roma 1-0. Nicolas Capaldo with the only goal of the game in the 88th minute. Barcelona-Manchester United turned out to be an excellent game of football, as it was hoped it would be. Marcus Alonso scored on 50 minutes to put Barca 1-up. Marcus Rashford equalised two minutes later, and a Jules Koundé own goal put United 2-1-up on 59, before Rafinha equalised on 76. Xavi made some really strange decisions with his team selection. Arejo right back, Kunde centre back, those two should have been swapped. Marcus Alonso starting, no, no, no. I know he scored, but Jesus wept. And Jordi Alba left back. When they brought on Christensen and Balde, that looked like much more like the Barcelona defence we've seen this season. And it needs to be the defence we see when they go to Old Trafford. Kunde right, Balde left. Arejo and Christensen in the middle. That's got to be their back four. That back four has been the best defence in Europe this season. That needs to go to Old Trafford. Kessie and De Jong in midfield. I don't really like that pairing. I do like the Rafinha-Pedri-Gavi line behind Lewandowski, though you could tell they were missing Usman Dembele. He just adds something really special to the team when he's on form. So I would imagine in the second leg we see Gavi. Gavi's suspended. So if Dembele's fit, he'll come in. Pedri got injured. And Xavi came up with the most bizarre st- statement, claiming that Sergi Roberto could play that role. He just can't. Simply can't. Not even a little bit. Pablo Torre could. Ferran Torres maybe could. But certainly not Sergi Roberto. Um, it's a good draw for United away from home. I think they'll be happy to have gotten a good result and go back to Old Trafford in control of the tie. Ajax nil, Union Berlin nil, Shakhtar Donetsk 2, Ren 1. Ren are in really poor form at the moment. Uh, Krishkiv and Bondarenko with the goals for Shakhtar in the first half. It can be pulled on back for Ren, giving them a good fighting chance in the second leg. Sevilla 3. PSV Eindhoven nil. Sevilla continue to improve Im- immeasurably since they made their managerial change. They have really turned themselves around and gone from a team that looked like they were going to get relegated in La Liga and just embarrassed themselves in Europe into a team that might just go and win this competition again. Uh, Yusuf N. Naziri scored the first. Lucas Acampos, who was sent on loan to Ajax for the first half of the season for reasons nobody can fully explain. And Nemanja Gudelj with the three goals there. Really, really good win for Sevilla under George Sampaoli. Um, I think, I think Ruud van Nistel will be disappointed with how his team kind of gave up. Sporting won, Mittelland won. Imam Ashur with the goal for Mittelland on 77. 
Sebastian Coates, formerly of Liverpool, with the equaliser in the 94th minute. You would say advantage Mitterland in that one. Juventus won, Nantes won. Dusan Vlahovic put Juve one up on 13 minutes. And it looked like they would coast. It looked like they would go on and score two and three and four. And then Allegri just did Allegri things and tried to manage the game out. Uh, Ludovic Blas with the equaliser on 60 minutes. Great result for Nantes. And they're in a strong position going into that second leg. Leverkusen two, Monaco three. Leverkusen looked like they had this game in hand. Fredeki had thrown one into his own net on nine minutes. But Moussa Diaby on 48 and Florian Wirtz with a wonderful goal on 59 put Leverkusen in control. And it looked like they might get a third, but Crepin Diata scored on 74 and Axel de Sassi scored on 92 minutes with a rocket of a shot from outside the box to give Monaco the win. I would say a slightly undeserved win, but Monaco did play well to their credit. I, I love that Bayer Leverkusen team. There's so much talent there. I just wish Alonso would stop pandering to certain players. Like, you look at the back four that started. Frimpong right back, Incapier left back, Tapsapa in the middle next to Jonathan Tapp. You've got Kasunu sitting on the bench, a significantly better defender at this point in time than Jonathan Tapp. Put him in the team. Palacios and Andrich in midfield is fine, hard-working, ball-winning players can move the ball around. That's fine. You would ideally like to upgrade an Andrich as you would Radecki. And then Amiri, Verts and Diaby behind Klozek. I'd rather have Klozek wide on the right and play Patrick Schick as the nine. I like Amiri, but I don't think he gets in their best 11. I know Alonso's trying to use Amiri for balance because he can allow them to drop in to a 4-4-2 if need be. Or a 4-3-3, whatever he wants. But still, I'd like to see Klozik play right wing and Schick play through the middle. I know Schick's not fully fit, but still. There's so much talent there. And I really do think if they could keep that team together, upgrade the goalkeeper, upgrade an Andrich, keep Andrich as a squad player for certain. Keep them fit, develop that team for two years, I think they could challenge Bayern. I really do think they could challenge Bayern. That one's well set up for the second leg, but it is advantage Monaco. The Barcelona United and Leverkusen Monaco games were the the star turns last night, the most exciting games. And uh, that's not in any way surprising. The second legs of those games will take place next Thursday. In the Europa Conference League, Quarabeg beat Ghent 1-0. Leandro Andrade with the only goal of the game. Braga nil, Fiorentina four. Definitely didn't see this one coming. Luka Jovic put Fiorentina one up on the stroke of half time. I love seeing him do well. I was a big fan of him at Eintracht. I hated what he went through at Real, how just poorly used he was, how underutilized. The fact they just gave him away. Literally just gave him away. They spent 60 million on him and gave him away three years into a six year contract. So I like to see him doing well. He's not scoring a ton of goals this season. Well, he's got he's got ten in thirty one games. It's not to the level he's capable of. I hope he can get back to that level because I do think he's a really really talented player. 
Um, there is questions over his his attitude, maybe. That's why, why Benfica gave up on him. But I do think there's a real player there, really elite-level goal scorer when he's at his very best. Uh, he scored just before halftime. Tormeno was sent off on 55, and then Fiorentina just kind of ran away with the game. They scored again on 60 through Jovic, and then Arthur Cabral, the player they signed to replace Vlahovic, Dusan Vlahovic, when he went to Juve, they brought Cabral in from Basel, uh, but he hasn't had a great time of things since joining, but he managed to score twice on 79 and 90, giving him seven goals for the season in 26 games. They've got two really talented strikers there. If they can get them both clicking and firing together, that could be something. It really could be something. They don't generally play together. It's usually one or the other. But I do think those two as a pair could work quite well. Good to see Amrabat has put behind him all the nonsense about leaving and whatever else, and he's got his head down to play the rest of the season. There's a lot of talent there. Uh, Nico Gonzalez is very talented. Mandragora is very talented. I like Milenkovic, the centre-back. Dodo, the Brazilian right-back, is a lot of fun as well. Because that Fiorentina team has some really good players. They've made a lot of mistakes over the last few years in terms of some of the players that they had and let go of. But there's a lot of talent still there. Uh, moving on to Trabzonspor 1, Basel 0. Jens Stryger Larsen scored a goal. One of his teammates put his arm out to try and grab a hold of him. Kind of slapped him in the mouth. So Stryger Larsen lay on the floor and cried about getting smacked in the mouth for a couple of minutes before getting up. Uh, really tough game for Trabzonspor. Given what's going on in Turkey at the moment, after the earthquakes, it was very, very emotional for them. And I'm delighted they got a win, especially just for their fans, who, who obviously are going to have people that they know that have been, um, you know, heavily impacted by by what's gone on. Bodo Glimp nil, Lech Poznan nil, Sheriff Tiraspol nil, Partizan Belgrade one. Bit of a surprise this one. Ricardo George Perez Gomes with the only goal of the game. Igor Vucevic. Vucicic was sent off on 50 minutes and Partizan managed to hold on. Larnica won, Dnipro won, Angel Garcia with the only goal of the game. Ludogorets won, Anderlecht nil, Thiago with the only goal there. And Lazio won, Cluj nil. Patrick sent off, or Patrice, sent off after 15 minutes for Lazio, who proceeded to play the rest of the game with 10 men. Still dominate, still dominate the ball, still dominate chances and score the only goal of the game. Chiro Immobile just before half time. So that is the Europa Conference League. The second legs, as with the conference, uh, as with the Europa League, will be next Thursday. And most of them, actually all of them, bar Fiorentina Braga, are really well balanced. So should be good next weekend, or next week, rather. Uh, moving on to the Premier League then, Aston Villa continue to do strange things. Tyron Mings has been given a two-year contract extension, committing him to the club until 2026. 
Uh, if ever there was a player they should have been looking to sell this summer, Tyron Mings is one of them. Mings and McGinn are the two players they should most quickly be looking to rid themselves of because those two players, they're very powerful personalities in that dressing room and they kind of set a level at that club, a level that Villa need to get above and beyond. And I don't think they'll be capable of while they've still got those two. But maybe with Mings, he was at a contract in 2024. Maybe this is just to protect his value. Um, either way, I, I don't like giving him the new contract, but it is what it is. Uh, we'll do the gossip. We'll go to break. We'll bring Guy in and we'll run through the weekend's games. We've got Liverpool, Manchester United and Manchester City all monitoring Mason Mount's current contract situation at Chelsea and claims that Chelsea have offered Mason Mount in a swap deal for Joe Felix. Um, I wouldn't put any faith in the Mount for Felix talk because it's from Marca. So, you, you know, it's toilet journalism. Um, wouldn't surprise me if United were interested. I don't really see him as a City player. I know Liverpool like him, but I don't really see him as a City player. Several of the Premier League's top clubs have been alerted to the possible availability of Neymar. Uh, this claims that Liverpool have interest. I can guarantee they don't. I think it claimed Manchester City had interest. I can guarantee they don't. Newcastle, maybe. It would be foolish for certain, but maybe. You can be 100% certain Bowley would want him at Chelsea because Bowley's an idiot. Um, Argentina forward Lionel Messi's father held talks with PSG on Thursday as they look to agree a new contract. Now, the spoofer with the catchphrase will tell you that the contract was agreed months ago because, you know, he's a spoofer with a catchphrase. Groups in Saudi Arabia, groups in Saudi Arabia have joined the race to buy Manchester United, according to The Telegraph. Qatari investors are readying an opening bid worth about $5 billion for United. How much truth there is to any of this, I don't know. Today is the deadline. Uh, I still think Jim Radcliffe is the most likely buyer. Bayern Munich have told Manchester United they will need to pay $18 million to sign Marcel Sabitzer on a permanent deal. That's not a bad fee, actually, for a player like him. He's a good player. Real Madrid are eyeing a move for Diogo Dello who has yet to renew his contract at Old Trafford. Real do need a right-back. They could do it a better right-back than him, but he is having a good season, and he is starting to show what he's capable of. Arsenal have sent scouts to watch Atletico Paranin's um, youth, Brazilian youth international forward, Vitor Roque. Uh, the fee that Atletico are looking for is believed to be in the region of £50 million. Whew. Newcastle, Real Madrid, Manchester City and PSG are all interested in Kvice Kvaratskhelia, but the Serie A side would want well in excess of £50 million. You can double that. They will want £100 million for that player, and rightly so. If Anthony, who's not very good, and Mudrik, who's talented but mostly in terms of speed, are going for, you know, between 89 and £100 million, Gvaratskeli will go for significantly more. Newcastle are also watching Real Valladolid's 18-year-old right-back Ivan Fresneda. Everybody wants him. Everybody. He's the one I think Real Madrid will probably go and sign if they want to sign a right-back this summer. 
He'd also make a lot of sense for Barca if they wanted to move Kunde into the middle next to Arejo. Real Madrid manager Carlo Ancelotti says he does not care whether Marco Asensio signs a new deal or leaves. He doesn't care because he's leaving himself. Southampton and West Ham are both in contact with the representatives of Nice striker Terra Moffi. See, this is the type of trash that you get from Football Insider. Terra Moffi only just moved. He moved from Laurent to Nice on a loan with an obligation to buy. So he's not going anywhere in the summer. He's going to go to Nice, or he's at Nice. He will stay with Nice until the summer. That move will become permanent. They'll then keep him for at least a year because they paid 30 million euro. There's also a 15% sell-on clause. So they need him to do really well and boost his value so that when they sell him, they make a profit. This, from Football Insider, is tripe. And, of course, it is from Wayne Vesey himself the king of football inside spoofing. Former Tottenham boss would be open, oh, sorry, former Tottenham boss Harry Redknapp would be open to a return to management should Leeds ask him to come out of retirement. This is just garbage. Harry Redknapp is 75 years of age. He hasn't worked since 2017 when he had a disastrous spell at Birmingham. Before that, he managed Jordan, the country, not the model, for two games. He hasn't actually worked like a full-time permanent job since he was QPR manager in 2015, February 2015, eight years ago, eight years ago. And let's not forget, he almost bankrupted QPR. The same guy who bankrupted Portsmouth. The most overrated manager ever. Like a managerial career that lasted from 1983 to 2015. 32 years. One FA Cup. Get out. Nottingham Forest are attempting to register... Steve Cook back into their squad before facing Manchester City at the weekend. I'm very confused. He was left out of the squad. They've now got a severe injury crisis, and apparently they want to add him back in. Uh, Willie Bully out. Scott McKenna out. Musa Niakata out. Bianconi out, Coyote out. Yeah, they do have a lot of, uh, yeah, they do have a lot of injuries. Willie Bolly probably done for the season. McKenna out till April. Niakata probably still the better part of a month away. Bianconi done for the season. Coyote close enough to the season. That's not ideal at all. And 
they've just gotten rid of of playing Steve Cook, and now they're trying to get him back in. Jesus wept. That is a shocker for them. All the players they signed, and they're short at centre-back. Who else do they have? They've got Felipe, so that's he's not very good, but that's okay. And they've got Joe Worrell, who's not had a good season, but, you know, he's there. Ryan Yates, I reckon, could fill in at centre-back. They've got a couple of centre-backs out on loan. Panzo, Mabeso, but neither of them are under-21s. So they couldn't just recall them and play them. Uh, Who have you got? You've got... Is Zach Abbott a centre-back? Hmm. They might have to rely on some young players. They might have to call up somebody from their academy and give them a chance. Might be the only choice they have. Whether any of them are actually good enough, I have no idea. Like, I couldn't tell you if Aaron Donnelly... Uh, Riley Harbottle or Finn Back. Well, Finn Back's actually a right back, not a centre back. Uh, I couldn't tell you if any of them are good enough to play for Forest. But uh, I can tell you that this is going to be problematic for them now. That's a lot of defenders to be without for a prolonged period of time. Anyway, we'll take a break. Oh, before we go to break, before we go to break. Most people may have seen this clip, Guillaume Balaga and Jamie Carragher arguing about um, how it's been. Balaga's claim is basically it's unfair that the Premier League has more money than everybody else. And you're seeing this more and more. Seen a lot of Italian fans and media people say the same. It's unfair that the Premier League has more money. Uh, it's unfair that Southampton and Bournemouth on their own the bottom two in the Premier League, can go out and spend more by themselves than the entirety of Serie A and La Liga combined. And my answer to that is get your money up. Get your money up. Take care of your own. Sort your own houses out before you worry about the Premier League. Premier League clubs can afford to spend what they spend because their TV revenue is so immense. The reason the TV revenue in La Liga is is bad is because of the way it's been managed. But the argument Balaga was making was from a Real Madrid and Barcelona point of view, not even from other clubs. But Real Madrid and Barcelona for decades weren't even willing to equally share the TV revenue from La Liga with the other clubs because they wanted to keep their superiority over everybody else. Real Madrid and Barcelona spent themselves to the brinks of oblivion multiple times in the last 40 years. Multiple times. To keep themselves ahead of everybody else because they never wanted a fair playing field. And Carragher brought up the point about well, when Real Madrid were winning European Cups in the 50s. And Balaga tried to counter that and say, oh, well, that wasn't a financial thing. 
that was an even playing field. The advantage Real had was a sporting one because they had Puskas and Di Stefano and Gento. How do you think they had them players? You imbecile. They had them because they could pay them the highest wages. That's how Real Madrid have always operated. And as Carragher pointed out, Real Madrid for years just came to the Premier League and cherry-picked players. Cristiano, Michael Owen, Steve McManaman, bigger wages, better offers. Gareth Bale, Luka Modric, Jonathan Woodgate just came in over the top offering wages that Premier League clubs couldn't consider paying. But Real were happy to do it. Real want to cry poor mouth when they gave away a striker three, after three years of a six-year deal that they spent £60 million on. And they want to cry that other clubs are spending money. They just guaranteed to pay £65 million for a 16-year-old from Brazil. They paid £80 million for Aurelian Chuameni in the summer. They paid £60 million for Vinicius when he was 16. £50 million for Rodrigo at 16. But they want to crib and cry because what? Because they couldn't get Mbappe or they couldn't get Haaland. Real Madrid won the European Cup last year. That was their fifth European Cup in 10 years. But nothing's enough for these people. And Balaga, the shameless self-promoting spoofer that he is, is nothing more than a paid shill for these two clubs. He basically wants your hard-earned money that you pay to watch Liverpool versus Manchester United. He wants a chunk of that to go to Hitafe and Huesca and Valladolid and Vallecano. It's the most nonsensical ar- argument I've ever heard. When Syria A was dominant from 86 to 06, before the cheating scandal ripped it all apart, I never heard anybody suggest, oh, maybe Syria should share some of their money with the other leagues because they've got so much of it. Bear in mind, in Syria in the 90s, money was no object. In 1992, AC Milan bought Gianluigi Lentini from Torino for thirteen million pounds. Okay. When Roy Keane joined Manchester United in nineteen ninety-three for three point six million pounds, that was a Premier League record, an English record. Nearly 10 million in the difference. A year later. Absolutely staggering stuff. All of the, the big transfers prior to that 
involving British players were players leaving England to go abroad. So Brian Robson moves from West Brom to Manchester United for 1.5 million in 1981. The same year, sorry, three years later, United sell Ray Wilkins to Milan for 1.5. Two years later, Brian Robson goes to Barcelona for 2.3. Ian Rush goes to Juventus for 3.2. Chris Waddle goes to Marseille for 4.25. David Platt goes to Barry for 5.5 million. Gaza goes to Lazio for 5.5 million. All the while, the Premier, or the, the English transfer record is below 3 million. Trevor Stephen went to Marseille 5.5 million. Nobody was complaining about these European clubs coming in and just cherry picking away the best English talents, the best British talents from English clubs. No one was complaining. But all of a sudden, now that things have turned around and English clubs are able to spend money, at a level higher than the others. Now it's an issue. Now it's an issue. But like I said, take a quick look at the Champions League. Take a look at who's won the Champions League over the past years. Start in 0809. Barcelona, Inter Milan, Barcelona, Chelsea, Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Real Madrid, Real Madrid, Liverpool, Chelsea, sorry, Bayern, Chelsea, Real Madrid. United have not won it in that time. City have never won it. Arsenal have never won it. Spurs have never won it. You've got three European Cups in that last 15 years from English clubs. Two for Bayern, one for Inter Milan. And all the rest are in Spain. You can look at the Europa League. And it's a similar enough story. Of Spanish dominance. Sevilla have won four. In the past eight years. Atletico Madrid have won two in, well, three in the last 12 years. If we look at the same time period from 08, it's very heavily dominated by Spanish clubs. Sevilla would have four. Atleti would have three. Villarreal won it. Shakhtar won it. Like, United winning it and Chelsea winning it twice is the English representative in that. So just because English clubs are spending more money, it's not reflecting itself in the major European tournaments. So why is it an issue to you? What fair playing ground is Guillaume Balaga attempting to create here? His view is that English TV revenue should be shared to make a more even playing ground. It's not even as it is. Spanish clubs have been dominant. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? In 15 years, 
three times the Champions League, three times the Europa League have ended up in England. Seven European Cups have gone to Spain. Eight Europa Leagues have gone to Spain. But apparently the big English bullies are the ones that are the problem. Oh. Sometimes swearing is necessary. And Guillaume Balaga can fuck right off. I'll see you after the break. Right, welcome back. So I am joined by the one and the only Mr. Guy Drinkle. How are you, sir? I did like the Guillaume Balaguer rant. It was spectacular, Dave. Just got to say that. I hate him. (laughs) I hate him more than I hate the spoofer with the catchphrase. These two guys are self-promoting bullshitters who are laughingstocks in their own countries. But simpletons think that because they've got a fancy name and a snazzy accent, that they are somehow clued in to things that, you know, mere mortals called John, who are from Bristol, don't know. It's bizarre. Balaga is a laughingstock in Spain. A laughingstock. Nobody takes him seriously. Same with the other idiot in Italy. Nobody takes him seriously. But fans of English football seem to think that these two guys... Are, are the type we should be listening to. It's absolutely bizarre. To be fair, Revista de la Liga was good. Was a good show back in the day. It was, uh, but he uh, wasn't on it. That's true. Brilliant without him. We need a prelude M&M story for uh, Romano. Oh, if anyone doesn't know that, uh, that's fine. <laughs> or that, that story. There's, there used to be a guy on Twitter called Brenzy. I think Paul Brennan was his actual name. And um, he he was one of the funnier people you'd ever come across. But because Balaga would always claim to know things that, you know, just weren't, simply weren't true. Uh, and then, and then when he was found out to be spoofing, he'd come up with some new concocted story that something had just changed, like in the minutes preceding this revelation that he'd been lying to show that his original information was rock solid. And um, Brenzi came up with this story about him going into a shop and asking for praline M&Ms. And the shopkeeper says to him, well, there's no such thing. No, no, there definitely is. There definitely is. Um, just check in the back and I'm sure you'll have them. And the guy goes off, obviously, and comes back and says, no, we don't have any praline M&Ms. Oh, I've just had a phone call from the president of Mars. They've decided to release brand new peanut M&Ms instead. And the guy tries to tell him, well, they've been around for ages. And he says, no, no, they're new and rubs him on the head and takes his peanut M and M's and goes away. Absolute genius! Yeah. I can't Fantastic. stand him. Can't stand him. <laughs> uh, right, we have we have football this weekend, guy. But we were talking before we started recording. It's not exactly the most appealing slate of games this weekend. It's it's a little bit a little bit ugly this weekend. Yeah, and you probably say the best games are at three o'clock as well, which is a bit of a shame. I mean, Newcastle-Liverpool could be good, but Newcastle-Liverpool... It could also be dreadful. Yes, Newcastle-Liverpool and Liverpool away from home have been stanky, but we'll get to them. Um, 
I think one of the better games, and obviously the interesting thing is probably the narratives around Arsenal at the minute, is Villa against Arsenal, which is the half-12 kickoff. Um, obviously, injuries will play a big part, because if Villa have Callum Chambers at centre-back, Arsenal will win. I know you don't like Tyrone Mings, but he's better than Callum Chambers. Um, so if he's back, it could be more interesting. And we've seen physical teams somewhat bully um Arsenal in the last couple of games, Haaland, obviously Ivan Tony to to probably a, a more obvious degree. Ollie Watkins does have that in him, but he doesn't always show it. So it could be an interesting game to say the very least. Yeah, it very much could be, and and that's exactly what I was thinking before we started talking about this game was that Ollie Watkins needs a big game this weekend, and if he has a big game, there is a path to winning what we'll deem the Unai Emery Derby here. Um. Arsenal in their last three games when he picked up one point and that was a fortunate point at home to Brentford. They were outplayed by Everton, outplayed by Brentford and just outclassed by Manchester City. They've lost top spot. They do still have a game in hand, but now at this point you'd be looking at City as the favourites to win the league. Villa have lost their last two. But prior to that, we're starting to really round into a team that resembled an Unai Emery team. And I thought they gave City some problems last weekend. This is a huge game for Villa, who need to get back on track, because they've, they've targeted a top-half finish here. Now, as things stand, the team above them is Chelsea. But they'll also be looking at... Brentford and Fulham and Brighton and saying, well, hang on, we've got players as good as them. We can, we can match them. We can catch them and overtake them. At least two of the three. Sevilla so will be looking at a top half finish this season. That's got to be the stated aim for them. It's why Gerard was sacked. He was taking them in the wrong direction. So a lot of money got into that team and a lot of decent players there. They'll be without Diego Carlos. He's working his way back, probably still a week or two away. Burton Traore should be with the first team. Jed Steer is out. But Mings, they're hoping he'll be back. Last weekend, when Emery spoke about him before the City game, he said he was going to miss that game, but he should be back for this one. So we'll see. For Arsenal, still no Gabby Jesus. Unlikely to have Thomas Partey. Smith Rowe is day-to-day, and El Nenny looks like he's out for the season. No Jesus, no Partey. That's two parts of their spine gone. Partey is so important because of his ball winning and his, his physicality in midfield and how quick he moves the ball. Jorginho is a good player, but he's not the same type of player at all. Given the form they're in, I I could see Arsenal having their confidence knocked. They're now off the top of the table. That's definitely going to affect the the psyche of the team. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if Villa gets something here. So I'm going to go for a 2-2 draw. Yeah, and with the Europa League returning somewhat soon for Arsenal as well, it's it's going to strain what's already quite a tight-knit squad, especially in certain areas like if Thomas Partey's missing, their team goes down at least 10%, if not more. Oh, definitely. And then you look at, like, Arteta's already a bit rattled by this. 
Mikel Arteta has urged the Premier League to protect clubs against very difficult turnarounds between games. The Gunners will be back in action just 60, 63 hours after the defeat when they take to the, the City when they take on uh, mm-hmm. Aston Villa. There are certain rules of the Champions League. You're not in the Champions League, though. It is a bit odd, though, they've not just transferred that over. But if this was a 3pm game, you'd have Arsenal fans crying that they're not on TV enough. Well, true, but I mean, is there a reason why Liverpool... I suppose we were a Monday night game, but... Could Newcastle and Liverpool not play at half twelve and not Aston Villa Arsenal be the late kickoff? Well yeah, but hang on a sec. We're also playing Tuesday night. So yeah. we've got the Tuesday night kickoff and a late kickoff. So we're just as inconvenienced. We've got Real Madrid to play in the Champions League. Mm. They're playing Aston Villa. They're first. Yeah. Villa are eleventh. Stop crying about it. It's the same for everybody. It works out the same for everybody. Nobody was crying for Liverpool last season when we were playing 63 games in a season and having to fit 10 games into, was it? Was it March, I think, was it? It was just the month of March. Yeah. So nobody came to bat for us at the time. And when Klopp brought it up, he got told to shut up. But Arsenal haven't even started back into their... Europa League campaign and he's whinging about this like let's just have a quick look at Arsenal uh, coming into this game so obviously they played in the week against Arsenal against um, City they played Saturday against Brentford so they had a decent break there they had a full week off before that since the Everton game they played the 27th against City which was a Friday night so they had a full week off before that. They did the best part of a week off after the United game, a full week off after the Spurs game. Like, they've played once a week. Once a week since January 3rd. Now, because they had a midweek fixture, he wants to have a moan. That Arsenal City game, that was a rescheduled game that should have taken place months ago. That was just the slot for it. Simple as that. There's no conspiracy here. Nobody's doing anything mean to uh, to, sit, to to Arsenal. Like City are playing at 3 p.m. I don't really think two and a half hours is going to make a whole bunch of difference in terms of recovery. I haven't heard Pep cry about it, and Pep loves to cry. This is just Arteta trying to distract from the fact that mm-hmm. his team have bottled a comfortable lead at the top of the Premier League and are now looking up at City. That's all that is. And there is seven other games to fit in the most tightly packed Premier League season as well, so... Exactly. Them, them teams are going to have to do similar. Um, so it does even itself out somewhat. But we'll move on to the three o'clocks, and there is about 50 of them. Um, so we've got Brentford Palace to kick things off. Um, we always say this about Palace, they just feel really stale, and, I mean, the form kind of summarises that, three draws and two losses... It's just probably the most meh team in the league at the minute. There's nothing, nothing too exciting or interesting about them at the minute, really. I mean, at least some are like really bad and some are really good and some are a bit in between. But Palace just seem a bit dull at the minute. Whereas Brentford, I think we keep saying it, most formed team in the league at the minute. Mm. Yeah, the longest unbeaten run in the league at the moment. Playing really good football and 
not afraid of anybody. And they certainly won't be afraid of Crystal Palace. Um, they're hopeful that they'll have Pontus Janssen back. So that's a boost. Uh, at least, you know, in terms of squad numbers. Strakosha is still out, but he wouldn't play anyway because Raya's first choice. Uh, Palace have no Joel Ward, no Wilf Zaha. They have doubts over Will Hughes and Christopher Richards. But Joachim Anderson looks like he should be back. Nathan Ferguson is still ruled out. Like you said, Palace are just dull at the moment. And it does feel like it's gotten really, really stale. And it's kind of Michael Elise and friends at the moment. And if he can conjure something, they score goals. And if he can't, they don't. They're away in this game, which they just don't impress me on the road at all. I mean, this is a team that lost at Goodison Park. I'm going to go for the Brentford win here because they're the form team. I'll go. I'll go two one to Brentford. Yeah, there was a slight doubt about Tony, but I think Frank came out and said he'll play as well, so that's a huge boost. But it feels like even if without Tony, because I think they missed him for a few games, didn't they? And they still continued on. Just the find ways to win. Yeah, it's really impressive. Now this is probably the most. Well, hipstery, but certainly, I mean, this could be one of the better games of the weekend, is, is Brighton against Fulham, both teams in the um, Europa spots of the men, Fulham in the Conference League, one, assuming Newcastle or Man United don't implode. Um, but, yeah, it's a weird one. I think Brighton, it feels like this has been a long time coming because they've always had spells when they were in in and around these areas in the league and just kind of dropped off due to, well, a lack of goals and stuff like that. But now it seems to have came together and it's just consistently getting goals, getting results, whereas Fulham, obviously, there's always that one team who come up from the championship and just kind of impress massively. But Fulham, it's taken a few goals coming up, but right manager, right signings, etc. It feels like this might be their Sheffield United season where they were in, the top half for a long time weren't they mm. um, but no I think this will be an interesting game and the midfield battle because Caicedo not just one of the best young midfielders has been one of the best midfielders in the league McAllister's uh, reputation's only growing especially after the World Cup but Joe uh, Polina, um it's almost a shame he's like 28 because if he was a couple of years younger I think he'd have a massive move in him he probably still does but he has been massively impressive he has been phenomenal, and he's on the short list for signing of the season, considering mm-hmm. what they paid for him, I think, was around 17 or 18 million. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, it is just a shame he'll turn 28 in the summer, because I do think he's going to be on the short list for a lot of clubs. Uh, potentially, if like if he was a bit younger, I definitely think he'd be a player Liverpool would look at. But I could certainly see Newcastle taking a strong look at him, to maybe free up Gamerish to do a bit more in attack. Um, I could see him working at Chelsea next to Enzo. If I, Thomas I'd, Partey I'd disappears for any reason. <laughs> oh, so would I. Oh, have you seen that midfield? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, take Harrison Reed to Liverpool. <laughs> someone that can run and, and put in a bit yeah. of effort. I, w- I wouldn't say no. Um, yeah, I do think there'll be clubs that'll, that'll look strongly at him in the summer. Uh, he's been tremendous. Like you said, Harrison Reed has been really, really good. And look, Harrison Reed is nothing special. He's not a world class talent, but he's technically sound. He is a clever player and he is 
willing to run and run and run. And it's still strange to me that Southampton just kind of gave up on him and let Fulham nick him for six million the last time they were up. Yeah. Because he was a home, like a homegrown academy talent at Southampton. Like, that's what the purpose of their club, one of, one of the purposes of their club is, is to bring lads through their academy to the first team. It sums up Southampton in the last seven years? Post, post, um, post Potch. Yeah. Post Koeman, yeah. I mean, he played 30 games for them before he left. Then he had three straight loans, one at Norwich, where he played really well. One at Blackburn, where he played quite well, and one at Fulham, where he did really well, and then they just sold him to Fulham. He played more games, considerably more games on loan than he did. He played more games on loan in two of the three seasons he was on loan than he did in his four seasons at Southampton. That's basically what the situation is. He has been really good for Fulham, and this season especially has really found a groove. I really like that midfield, but I love that Brighton midfield. Caicedo and McAllister together are just perfect. There's just great understanding between them. The skill sets intersect really well. Like you said, it feels like this Brighton team has been a few years in the making and they just look like a team full of confidence at the moment. And with the Zerbi, they've discovered the ability to score goals, which they never had under Potter. The big square thing is where the ball goes. That's it, yeah. <laughs> well, well, we've done all this. What do we do with it now? Or knock it back to the goalkeeper and start over again. Now it's, we'll put it in the net and then we'll all have a discussion about what the right thing to do was. Do, do you think they would have, because they were in this position under Potter, do you think they would have maintained it as well if Potter stayed around or do you think it may have no. done the usual thing and just stopped scoring goals? They'd have stopped scoring goals and dropped off into the bottom half. Um, Potter's brand of football doesn't really lend itself to scoring a lot of goals. And we're learning that at Chelsea as well. Now, I know he doesn't have a striker at Chelsea, but he does. He's got Aubameyang. But you look at the type of chances that they get, and they're low-quality chances. So I think it, I think Chelsea would be better off if they'd just gone and appointed Roberto De Zerbi. I think they'd be playing really well. Um, I love his brand of football. I love what he's been able to do here so quickly. They're, to me, the most fun team in the league to watch. Now, this weekend, Motor is almost back. They reckon another week or two for him. Levi Colwell's another week or two. Danny Welbeck, another week or two. Lalana might be back. So they're getting back to full strength. Evan Ferguson being back is big, and you'd expect that he will cause Fulham's back line some problems. But likewise, Mitrovic is likely to cause some problems for uh, for Brighton, Tom Kearney is out and Cabano's out, but Robinson, Willie, uh, Willian and Mitrovic should all be okay to play. I'm looking forward to this game. I think this is the best of the 3 p.m. kickoffs. I'm going to go for a Brighton win. I'll go 3 1. If my mouse didn't die for a second there. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that, I think that should be a fun game, um, either way. Um, Next up, I don't think it'll be a fun game. Although it might be just loads of chaos in the middle and just no goals as Chelsea against Southampton. Um, Southampton's obviously a bit of a mess. Obviously, no manager offered. Did, did you see that one of Jesse Marsh for seven years and then offered him a six-month contract or something that came out? I can't remember the site that it came out on, but you know, it sums up them at recent times. Obviously, Chelsea, we 
I think every podcast in the football fandom has been over Chelsea a million times, so let's mm. not. Um, I mean, logic says Chelsea should win, but at the same time, if this is just a nil-nil dreadful game of football, I, it'll be last on match of the day, I think. <laughs> Either way. If this, if Southampton somehow pulled off a win here, I think Potter could go. I know mm. what we're hearing out of Chelsea has always got the support of the management and all this kind of stuff. But let's be honest, the defeat by Southampton earlier in the season was the start of Tuchel's demise. And it's not like things have been good under Graham Potter. It wouldn't surprise me at all if he is clinging to his job and they just want to put on, you know, a united front because... Let's be honest, this season is an embarrassment for Chelsea. They spent all that money in the summer and then sacked the manager. They went and spent a fortune to get Graham Potter. It started well. They won their first three league games. And they've won only twice since. With five defeats and six draws. So Potter's record in the league is five wins. Palace, poor. Wolves, bottom of the league at the time. Villa, awful at the time under Gerrard. Bournemouth, bottom three. And Palace again. That's who they've beaten. And every competent team they've come up against has either gotten a draw or beaten them. Now, Southampton are not what I'd class as a competent team. And I would expect Chelsea to win this game. Going in, Chelsea have no Brogia, no Pulisic, no Kante, no Sterling. No Mendy, and Chilwell should be okay. Southampton have no Larius. Walker-Peters is a doubt. Adams is a doubt. No Livermento, and McCarthy is uh, working his way back, but who knows when he comes back. Uh, he wouldn't start anyway. I think Chelsea should win this game, but Chelsea struggle to score goals, so I'm not going to give them a heavy win. I'll say they'll win 2-0. Yep, yeah, I think that could be anything, and nobody would be shocked. Um, either way, but feels like if Graham Potter got sacked by Chelsea, Southampton would probably just ring him and go, do you fancy the job? I, I guarantee <laughs> you, within an hour of the press release that he's been sacked, Southampton he's got a phone Southampton and Leeds. <laughs> yeah. uh, be... And rightly so. Yeah, like, Rightly so. He, he would be a great manager for either of those clubs. What we know is that Chelsea was too soon for him. Like, I know he's been a manager for a long time, but so much of his experience was outside the UK. He came to England in 2018, had one season with Swansea. One season. And it's not like he let, lit the world on fire there. They won only 41% of the games. He went to Brighton. He had three years. And he won only 31% of his games. Now, that's worth thinking about. 135 games, 42 wins, 46 draws, 47 defeats. Now, that's a fine record at Brighton, considering where they were when he took over, the fact that he had to completely change the style of play, completely change the squad. That record's fine. But when you move to a club like Chelsea, you're expected to win two out of every three games. That's kind of how they operate. You're expected to win far more than you lose. And 
it's just not it's not gone well for him. If we look at Chelsea managers over the last few years, like Tuchel won sixty percent sacked, Lampard won fifty two percent sacked, Sarri sixty two percent sacked, Conte sixty two percent sacked. Sorry, sixty five percent. Conte won a league, Tuchel won a Champions League. They sacked both of them. They sacked both of them. Like the standards at Chelsea are just so much higher than they are at Brighton. And I don't, I think that's what Potter wasn't ready for was mm. the, the level of expectation. Whereas at Southampton, at Leeds, all you've got to do, keep them in the division. Play good football, keep them in the division. That's it. That's the only expectation. You're not expected to win everything. You're not even expected to win every game. Play good football, keep them in the division. And you will live a very comfortable life there. Their fans, you get you get a cup run every couple of seasons. You may be finishing the top half once every three years. You will be adored by their fans. Their owners won't hassle you. They'll give you money to spend to keep you in the division, yada, yada. They'll pay you very well. They won't pay you as well as Chelsea, but the reason Chelsea pays so heavily is because of the expectation. And that's that's basically where Potter's falling short. He can't cope with the expectation. Definitely felt like there was a move, or even just finished the job at Brighton. Just there was yeah. a move in between. I mean, we've always said... A Spurs, Spurs, would have, Spurs would have been the job for him. Spurs even, even, like, even like a Villa or something where the yeah. expectations are a bit more. But uh, Yeah, like Villa's a huge club. Huge club. Yeah. Even, like, it wouldn't be a good job to take, but Everton, like, that level of club, like, Spurs are classed as a big six club, but if we're all being honest, they're much more of a Villa, Everton, Newcastle level club than they are a Liverpool, United, Arsenal, City, Chelsea level club. They're only in the big six, really, because they finished in the top four a bunch of times. They're not really a big six club. They don't, they don't have the, the history of, of success. They don't have the finances of the other clubs. They are much closer to your, your Everton's and your, your Leeds is even like that's the level of job. And I think you're right. I think that's where Potter should have gone. Finish off at Brighton and in all likelihood, Conte's gone at the end of the season. So that job would have opened up. Uh, the, the Villa job did open up. He could have got that. The Everton mm-hmm. job opened up. He could have got that. The Leeds job is open. He could have got that. Those were the jobs for him. Or even Leicester. Like a Leicester would have been ideal if Rodgers had gotten the heave ho. And then you do well there. And then maybe three years after you go there, then maybe you're ready for a Chelsea or an Arsenal or a Liverpool or a United or a City. Maybe. Not necessarily, but maybe. Far too early to go to Chelsea. It's going to end in tears. And uh, he will absolutely bounce back. And I think he'll get another shot. But I think it could be five, six years down the line. I think he'll need those five or six years just to continue to build himself and and figure things out a bit more. Because remember, what did we always say about Brighton? They play great football. They don't score goals. He hadn't figured out how to get them to score goals. And that's translated to Chelsea. If he had mm-hmm. figured it out, maybe Chelsea be a bit better off now. Yeah, at the same time, I think Chelsea's a bit of a poison chalice as well, because it yeah. is a mess. Um, yeah. But we will not get sidetracked because Steve Bruce 
it's not all that jazz. We will get on to them. Um, Everton leads probably the, well, certainly is the biggest game of the weekend in my eyes. Um, let's just check the relegation situation because who looks that far down? Mm. Um, Everton 18th at the minute on 18 points, uh, four, minus 14 goal difference. Leeds 17th, 19 points, minus 10 goal difference. Um, obviously, Everton are very much a, t- a home team. Um, they rely on Goodison, especially when Goodison's not in a toxic mood, which seems to, when a new manager's appointed, they give it their all, then it gets toxic towards the end, obviously. Whereas Leeds, obviously managerless. I think regardless of the results, I think Leeds have been playing the better football, but it just never really seemed to click with Jesse Marsh and the fans never really took to him. Maybe it was just a hangover of the Bielsa effect because he was... um. So loved, um, loved there. So maybe the, he was just the unfortunate in between guy. Um, but I just back Sean Dyche in these situations, dude. Mm. Yeah, I'm the same. I think, I think Everton will win this game and that will put Leeds into the bottom three. Now you're, you've absolutely, absolutely nailed it with what you said. Replacing Bielsa was going to be a near impossible job. But especially if you're trying to play a fairly attacking brand of football, it's always going to be compared to what Bielsa was doing. What they really needed was like a dull, sterile type of manager to come in and just grind out results like a Sean Dyche, perhaps. Um, it was the wrong job for, for Marsh, unfortunately, at the time. Uh, Everton this weekend, no Andros Townsend, no Calvert-Lewin, but Garner and Patterson are both back, which is big, big boosts for them. Garner will be another good body to have in midfield. Patterson gives them the other option at right back. But no Calvert-Lewin does make them quite blunt up front. Uh, Leeds, no Rodrigo, no Archie Gray, no Forshaw, unlikely to have Sinistera. Sonny Perkins is back. Liam Cooper should be back. Mark Rocca should be back. Struckel is back, and Stuart Dallas is out for quite a while. Uh, he had a horrendous injury, then got an infection, had to have a second surgery. So we'll see if we see him this season. I think Everton win a very dour game 1-0. Um, uh, this, Dyche needs this to be a dour game. He needs this to be as boring as possible. Because if it becomes a game that's end-to-end, Leeds have a lot more firepower. Because Leeds have a bunch of players who can score goals in Bamford, mm-hmm. Nanto, uh, Sinistera if he plays, Harrison can get goals, Aronson can get goals. Somerville was on fire before Som- his injury. Playing unbelievably well and he's, he's playing pretty well again now that he's back. And obviously their, their big, um, big January signing router can get goals as well. So, Everton really need to take the sting out of this game and just grind their way through it because I don't think Leeds will enjoy a game where it they. It might get... be the first. I said this to you earlier in the week, sorry, did you mean it? It feels like this might be the first game Sean Dyche can play Sean Dyche stuff because he obviously played 4 5 1 at the main. So now he can maybe go 4 4 2, maybe a more pair with Sims because he struggled massively against Liverpool Hugely. a bit. Or maybe Gray can be the second striker or something like that. Um, yeah, I thought Gray and Mopey and look for pace and movement against that Leeds back line because they played Arsenal, they played Liverpool, two teams that are good defensively. Now, Liverpool this season haven't been great defensive. They're still a good defensive team. Leeds are a bad defensive team. 
So there is an opportunity to open them up. There's also question marks over the goalkeeper, obviously. So I think you're right. I think a 4-4-2 is, is more what's needed in this game. So it will be in McNeil wide, um, Onana and Gaye in midfield and put Gray and Mope up front. The other thing though is this is the first game where Everton don't have a physical advantage in midfield. Mm. So they'll have to find ways to overcome that because Onana and Gaye were able to, and Decore were able to run over Arsenal. And for spells against Liverpool, they were able to run over them a little bit until Liverpool figured things out, got their goal and settled the game down. But Leeds can throw out Adams, McKenney and Rocca as a three. And I don't care who you are, you're not overrunning that midfield. So I think you're right. Dyche needs to go back to playing more Dyche football and uh and grinding this one out. I'll go one nil to Everton, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if Leeds won, because Everton are garbage. Yeah, so um, um we are running long because I finally just looked at the Skype figure. We are running a bit long, so we'll go through some of these quickly. Uh Forest against Man City. I think if Forest had all their players for it, especially in defence, maybe a shock because City's home uh, away form's not great, but with the injuries there, Man City just beating Arsenal away from home as well. It just surely it's just Man City. Yeah, no Bolly, no McKenna, no Wani, no Niakata, no Henderson. Yates is a doubt, Lingard's a doubt, Biancone, Richards and Coyate are all out. Manchester City have no no excuse. John Stones is the only one they're missing here. I will go for a 3-1 Manchester City win. Yep, um, this game should be fun. Wolves against Bournemouth. Um, Bournemouth look funner with, with all the new lads they've mm. got, whereas Wolves maybe trading in some, getting more experience with your Sarabias and stuff like that, a bit more not not Moutinho level experience, but a bit more in the prime experience. Uh, bringing in Adama back from the wilderness kind of thing. Actually having a striker probably helps as well. Um, I don't think it'd be the most fun game, but I could see either way, but I'd probably make Wolves favourite just because Lopetegui's been, done such a good job so far. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think you look at Wolves, no Kalasic for the season he's done. Uh, no Chiquinho, no Huang. No Bubakar, Traore, Pedence is a doubt, and Lamina is suspended. So they are missing a bunch of players, but then so are Bournemouth. No Lewis Cook, no Lloyd Kelly. That's two important players that have missed big chunks of the season. David Brooks is still working his way back. No pressure on him. Uh, Stanislas is a doubt. Sinisi is a doubt, which is a big, could be a big blow because he's been quite good recently. And Zerbani arrived at a foot injury. He's probably another week away. I'll go for the Wolves win because they're at home and I think Lopetegui's done well and I think he can grind out a result here. I'll go 1-0 to Wolves. But I think it'll be an interesting enough game because Bournemouth have some fun players now. And I, I like watching Utara mm-hmm. and I like watching uh, Hamid Traore. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, moving on to the late kickoff on the Saturday. I told you there was 200 um, three o'clock kickoffs. But Newcastle-Liverpool at half five, it, it feels like this is... Where Liverpool's Premier League season's hanging on from in a thread, obviously. Um, good result against Everton, but the key word there is Everton. Um, Newcastle, obviously, stagnating a smidge with all the draws I mentioned in the intro of this part of the show. Um, but Newcastle's home for, they don't concede many goals. Liverpool got Van Dyke back, but 
even against Everton, there was moments where them hitting the post just before the first goal, obviously. It feels like, they, well, obviously it was a Real Madrid game uh, in the middle of the week. This is a huge week for Liverpool, and I'm not overly confident as well. No, neither am I. Um, neither am I at all. This, this Liverpool's game hinges, Liverpool's season in the Premier League hinges on this game. A draw is not a disaster, but a win is needed. A defeat is is a complete disaster. Uh, Ramsey's out for the season. Alcantara's out for another couple of weeks. Diaz is another couple of weeks. Canate's another week at least. And Artur is another week at least. Um, but Newcastle have problems of their own. Gamerish is suspended. Manquillo's a doubt. Willock's a doubt. Target's a doubt. Wilson's a doubt. Lachelle's Almiron and Samaxman should be back. And Kraft is done for the year. I think we will see Newcastle, though, take it cautiously here with some of those players, especially Willock and Wilson, because they've got a huge game coming up next weekend, the cup final. Mm-hmm. I think that's where their focus should be. 68 years. 68 years since they won anything. That's got to be their focus. And beating United in a cup final will be oh so sweet for them. So I am going to say that Liverpool win this game 2-1. I think it will be scrappy. I don't think it will be pleasant. I think it's going to be a real, real chore for them. But if they can get the first goal, I think Liverpool win this game 2-1. Newcastle are really struggling to score goals at the minute. They're great defensively, but they are struggling going forward. I'm going to back Liverpool to win 2-1. I bloody hope so. Moving on to Sunday, we have Man United against Leicester, which should be a fun game. Obviously, Man United in between Barcelona games as well, which was a bit of a mad one last night, um, with a couple of suspensions and injuries and stuff like that. Whereas Leicester... It just seemed to coincide with James Madison coming back. He just seems to transform them into a much more competent team. And I'd, I'd throw Indian Acho in there as well. I think Dak has not really shown anything, and Vardy's uh, probably, well, he's passed his best, let's be honest. So I think them two seemingly made the attack click, and uh, Harry Souter and um, uh, Woot Fares cheered up the defence. Yeah, and Leicester are getting players back as well, which is important. So Thielemans should be okay. Sumari should be back and Johnny Evans should be back. So I think those are two boosts for them, even just for the squad to have, you know, depth on the bench. Uh, no Bertrand, who's missed most of the season, I think all the season. And James Justin has done for the year with the torn Achilles. United have a bunch of players out. Uh, Donny van der Beek's season's over. Ericsson's out till late April. Casemiro's suspended. Martial probably misses this one with the hip injury. Anthony probably misses this one. He's had a few knocks of late and they seem to be taking some caution with him. McTominay's a doubt and I I don't think we ever see Greenwood play for United again. Uh, United are at home. United are in mixed form. Two wins, two draws and a defeat in the last five. Leicester have two wins and a draw in their last three. So they do seem to be on a little bit of a run, but we've seen this from them before this season. And that defence is is an absolute train wreck. But they can punish you going forward. And United without Casemiro don't look the same team at all. I'm still going to back United to win. I'll go 2-1 because Rashford is in phenomenal form. Sancho looks a bit more like Sancho, which is positive. 
And Bruno Fernandes having a decent season now that he's got the weight of Cristiano off his shoulders. I'll go 2-1 to United. Yeah, I certainly think there'll be goals in that game. Um, maybe not. Well, yeah, because Eric Dyer will be playing centre-back. Um, Spurs against West Ham. Uh, West Ham have a loads of... I saw David Moyes' uh, press conference notes and injuries, etc. Whereas Spurs... Well, the manager's list again, which might not be the worst thing, which <laughs> is the last result for the assistant refer- uh, assistant manager. Um, but that defence, Dave, is just stanky. It's awful. It's awful. Ugh. It is It is dire. It is Eric Dyer. Um, and Spurs have no Basuma, no Bentoncourt. That's two of the three best midfielders gone. No Sessegnon, which means Perisic has to start again. And no Hugo Lloris, which means Fraser Forster, who's just not good enough at this point for the Premier League. But, but fortunately for West Ham, fortunately for Spurs rather, West Ham, no Kurt Zuma, Ariola's a doubt, Cornea's out, Agard's a doubt, Cresswell's a doubt, Skimak is a doubt, and um, Paqueta is out. So that's a lot of players. Key players, both starting centre backs, their best goalkeeper, and their three best, three of their four best attacking players in Cornet, Skimaka, and Paqueta. Only Jared Bowen will be fit. Now, Bowen's playing a bit better of late, but West Ham have been so, so poor all season long that I just can't back them in any game. Even against the Spurs team that are so up and down, I'm going to go for the Spurs win. I'll say 2-0. No, I won't because I can't trust that defence and goalkeeper. I'll say 2-1. <laughs> I'll say 2-1 to Spurs. Uh, and that's the last game? And that's it. There's a long bumper podcast to make up for some of the shorter ones that have been thrown out by us in the last little well, by me, in the last little while. Um, so, yeah, hope you enjoyed. Hope you have a pleasant weekend. Enjoy the football. Enjoy whatever it is, whatever else it is you do with yourself over the weekend. And we will see you Monday. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.